Wes, you told me if I flip that switch, it works. Does that work? All right, I've been requested to stand up here. Uh, I'm not real comfortable doing that, but we don't want to cause others to be uncomfortable. So we'll do. This is a very confined space. <laughs> All right, well, we're in trouble this morning. Um, the notes that I've written for today are on my coffee table. But I have spent a couple weeks um, thinking about this text, so I think we're going to be fine. But if it takes me two hours instead of 30 minutes, uh, that's, that's the way things are when you're not as organized as, as you maybe need to be. But uh, find the book of Philippians if you would. Maybe I should say the letter of Philippians. And while you're finding that, just a couple uh, background notes. Paul had entered Philippi with Silas and Timothy and Luke and probably others in what we call Acts chapter 16. And most of us, if we're familiar with our Bibles, uh, know of the events of Paul going into Philippi. That's where he meets this demon-possessed uh, young lady who seems to be bothering him, uh, running after him, making declarations. And at one point, Paul casts the demon out of this girl. And the fellows that were making money from her are upset because they've lost their uh, illegitimate source of income. So I'm sure they roughed up Paul and those who were with him and they pull him before the magistrates. They have them beaten and thrown in prison and then comes the story of the Philippian jailer. So that's Acts chapter 16. I'm sure you've all heard that numerous times in multiple ways. Eventually they release Paul and send him on his way to Thessalonica. When he writes this letter that we're about to read here, it's been about 10 years. And in those 10 years, Paul has traveled uh, probably another five or 6,000 miles of, of, of his journeys. And uh, he's ultimately been arrested. And he's currently sitting in prison, or we might say under house arrest, in Rome. Uh, the last two verses of the book of Acts talk to us about Paul being in a rented apartment and that he had to pay for that rented apartment. So he's incarcerated. He's not so much in this dank, dark dungeon that we often think of as ancient prisons. He's in an apartment. But he's in chains. He mentions four times in chapter 1 that he's in chains. And so obviously he cannot get out of the apartment, but in the ancient world you could receive uh, visitors. And in that period of time, if people weren't bringing you food and bringing you goods and bringing you clothing, or in this case maybe bringing you parchments and ink and a, a, a writing quill of, of some sort, if you weren't brought things by others, you just died uh, in in incarceration, because the Romans had no uh, sense of uh, responsibility toward those whom they had uh, uh, under arrest. 
So Paul's in Rome. He's under house arrest. He receives an emissary from the church in Philippi. His name is Epaphroditus. He's mentioned toward the end of chapter 2. And no doubt when Epaphroditus came, he brought Paul some goods. We don't know what all. But at some point in time, Epaphroditus receives maybe a scroll or, or a parchment and returns to the city of Philippi, where this letter is now read to the congregation. So I want to ask you to join me, uh, beginning at chapter 1, verse 27, and we're going to read down through chapter 2, verse 16, uh, a, a more of a lengthy text, but I think it'll help us in reference to uh, what we're going to be looking at this morning. So I'm, I happen to be reading out of the NIV this morning. Uh, I'm going to start here at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. The idea of deliverance, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship from His Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, 
children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you should be glad and rejoice with me. Our Father, yes, this was written 2,000 years ago. and Yes, it was written by a human creature. We call him Paul. And yes, he was writing to humans in the city of Philippi. And it's all historic. And yet, in some sense, it's written to us this morning. It is written to Cardwell Community Church on September the 3rd, the year 2023. Yes, these are the words of Paul, but they are an expression of your heart to us this morning. So grant us the courage and the conviction and the capacity to apply this truth to our hearts and our lives, for it is what you have for us today. Well, thank you for that work you're going to do in our hearts and minds, for we've asked in Jesus' name. Amen. Last fall, I was invited graciously to be at the home of Gary and Carolotta. And there was a number of us that went through the book of Philippians over the course of eight weeks. And so we quickly kind of went through these various sections in this letter. But I found myself, when the pastor said something to me a number of weeks ago, I found myself the moment he said, Jim, we're going to be on vacation again. Would you care to fill in? And of course I said yes. But instantly my mind came to Philippians. I've been thinking about it for almost a year, and not so much in any specific sense, but just thinking about it. Now, in the bulletin, there is a little bit of an outline. Those of you who collect bulletins, you can look in there, and you can kind of see where I'm going this morning. Because in verse 27, Paul says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. Conduct yourselves in a worthy manner. What does that mean? How many of us looked in the mirror this morning or yesterday, or how many of us will look in the mirror tomorrow and ask ourselves the question, am I walking, living, speaking, working in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Are you worthy? Now, most of us would say, well, of course I'm not worthy. The worth I have is that which has been imputed to me 
via the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And therefore, I have no worth intrinsically, you know, eternally. It is worth in Christ. And yet we are called to walk worthy. So let's understand this in more of a human sense, yes. But I think we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to walk worthy? What does it look like? Now, generally speaking, if we were in a home Bible study and we just kind of threw out the question, what does it mean to walk worthy? I think most of us could kind of fill the air with numerous comments. Oh, I think it looks like this, or I think it looks like that. And more than likely, we would be gathering a number of spiritual realities. But Paul actually defines it in this text. So I want to somewhat limit how we're understanding this idea of a worthy walk in light of what is specifically said in this text. So... You'll notice if you're looking at the outline, worthy manner conduct needs others. Worthy manner conduct needs others. Let me read 27 and 28 again. Philippians chapter 1, 27 and 28. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So here he is, he's sitting under house arrest in Rome, and he writes to these people, and he says, I wish to hear that you stand. Now, most of us recognize what it means to stand. It's not so much talking about the posture that we're supposed to take, as much as it's talking about moral integrity. And notice before this sentence ends, he's talking about opposition. In light of those who oppose you. So he's talking about the moral courage to stand in light of the challenges in this case that the Philippians were facing, certainly in the case that Paul was facing, certainly of those who, of the gospel message as a whole who were being opposed by those in their society. Now, you and I live in America in the 21st century. Opposition hasn't really come to us yet. For the most part, we can live our lives, we can conduct our businesses, we can rear our families, and we don't necessarily face that much opposition. I think we may soon. But in this case, the Philippians were facing opposition. And Paul says, I want you to stand. Now the thing that's important about this particular passage of Scripture, if we were to look at the grammar of all of these injunctions. They're all second person plural. I want you to stand. These, this is not an injunction to the individuals in the city of Philippi who called themselves the family of God. It, this is not an individual request. This is a corporate request. I want you 
all of you corporately, collectively, to stand with moral courage. You know what that means? It means you have to work at the sense of community. It doesn't happen automatically. It has to be something you've chosen to do. Now, I got saved in 1980, which means I'm 43 years old in the Lord. For some of the time that my wife and I have been married, we lived in Philadelphia area in Pennsylvania. We lived in Wisconsin. We've lived in the state of Washington. And now for the last 15 years or so, we've lived in Montana. I've also had the privilege of speaking at a number of churches in various places around the country. And can I step on some toes for a moment? It is true, whether we're talking about Cardwell Community Church or wherever, that there are those who, oh, maybe one or two minutes before the service starts, they walk in the door. And they typically will glad hand a little bit as they're quickly moving to the same seats they've sat in for weeks. And they will assume a posture of complete passivity. And they sit and listen for about an hour, something to that effect. And as soon as that final prayer or benediction or whatever words are commonly spoken at the end of the service, they're up like a shot. They're moving toward the door. Maybe they've shaken some hands on the way out the door. But you know when you see them next? Next Sunday, about a minute or two before the service starts. Now let's be frank, they did church. Uh, We should be glad for that. They sat under the hearing of the Word of God. Kudos to you. But when you live that type of an environment, when that is what church is to you, can you build any sense of community doing that? Can there be any sense in which you are intermingling your lives with others when that is church for you? Can you be fulfilling what God, in essence, is saying in this word when that is how you conduct yourselves in relation to the family of God? I dart in the door at the last minute, and I dart out the door in the first minute that I can. And the next time anyone sees me will be the next Sunday. You know, when Paul was speaking here, and again, yes, it's true, these are Paul's words to the Philippians, but in essence, these are God's words to you and I today. What God, in essence, is saying here is, when I hear about you, those of you who are in Cardwell, Montana, when I hear about you, I want to know that you are standing firm in one spirit Notice this next word. Again, I have the NIV. Yours might be slightly different, but I think the idea is the same. Contending as one for the gospel. Contending as one. In other words, if someone within the congregation of Philippi was challenged in some sense, it would affect the entire community. 
And the entire community would have some sense of a, a reaction to what's going on. Again, it seems to be in America, we have this, uh, what do we call it, rugged individualism. We like to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I don't need help from anyone. I can get the job done. Right? We have stickers on our trucks, get her done. Right? That's the Montana spirit. Get her done. Well, do you need me? Do I need you? I remember last year, about this time, I went through 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And some within the church of Corinth were saying, I don't need you. And Paul was challenging the people in Corinth saying, you know, if you were all eyes, where would the hearing be? Or if you were all ears, where would the speaking be? Right? He uses this kind of clunky analogy of, uh, of all of us recognizing the humanity that we have. We have eyes, we have ears, we have mouths, we have hands, we have feet. And he uses the analogy of a body the eyes can't say, I don't need you. And you and I can't say to one another, I don't need you. At least we ought not. I thought about this word contending as one. You know, if I took 12 militarily trained people, some from maybe the naval and some Marines and some Army Rangers or some Green, uh, Green Beret or whatever special forces. They've all had different types of training. They're all professional soldiers. They all know how to fight in war. But if they've never worked together before, and you just took those 12 soldiers and you put them on a field of operation, and you told them to either take that hill or protect the valley or whatever the assignment was, they have skill sets and they're good at what they do, but they don't know what the others of their 12 are good at. They don't know who's the best shot. They don't know who has the best logistical sense. They don't know each other. And so they don't work together. Whereas if you took 12 military people who had been training together for years and they knew each other intimately and they were given the same military challenge, I guarantee there would be a higher degree of success at them carrying out their mission. And this is what God in essence is saying to you and I. We are on a field of battle. There is opposition. It's going to be increasing, but there's some opposition regardless. We do need one another. And God says, first of all, a worthy manner needs others. Secondly, a worthy manner serves others. Notice chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, our Bibles tend to have a chapter division between these two sections that I've just read. But as Paul wrote this, or should I say, as God wrote this, through the agency of Paul, there were no chapter divisions, there were no verse divisions. The text continued to flow. And so, first of all, he's talking about how we ought to act corporately in the light, in light of opposition. But here there's a slight shift in how we ought to act corporately in light of one another. In light of one another. Now, maybe there are some here, you might say, Jim, I'm not as familiar with the Bible yet. I'm still working on it. So maybe there's a question in your mind, if you have encouragement, if there's any comfort, please recognize grammatically, we could recognize that or understand that as saying, since. The grammar does allow for that type of idea. So really what Paul is saying is, since there is encouragement from being in Christ, since there is comfort in His love, since there is the fellowship of the Spirit, if there is tenderness, if there is compassion, and there is, then make my joy complete. Okay, Paul, what, do you, what, what are you saying? What do you want? Be like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, in the first hour this morning in our adult Sunday school class, and let me give a commercial for any of you who oh, about 10 o'clock, you're kind of home having a cup of coffee anyway, so please uh, come and visit with us at the 10 o'clock hour. But we were talking about humility and service and so on, and it's not our nature to serve other people, is it? It's more of our nature to say, Jim, I've got my life and my time and my business and my purposes, and my family, and my... And we fill in the blanks, right? Well, we should be responsible. The New Testament certainly urges us to be responsible. And as a matter of fact, he says, notice verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but then notice the next phrase, but also to the interests of others. You know, if my conclusion is, I've got my time and my family and my job and my things, and I just am too busy to get involved in the lives of the people of God. If I ever find those words coming across my lips, then I need to look in the mirror and say, you know what, you are too busy. 
That's exactly what he means here when he says don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. When my Christianity, in essence, is focused on me and my time and my life and my goals and my family, and these are good things. I'm not saying these are bad things. And, I, and again, I'm not saying we shouldn't be responsible. We should be. But if in fulfilling my time and my life and my things and my goal and my money and my, you know, if in doing all of that, I don't have time to build community, which is what he mentioned in the prior text, then I'm out of balance. Then I'm not wisely using the time that I've been given which is the whole point of the illustration from verses 5 and following. You know, this is the passage where they talk about Christ emptied Himself. I mean, this has become a theological beach ball that people have written about for two millennia. What does it mean that Christ emptied Himself? It's called the kenosis passage. But what's important is why this illustration of the life of Christ is in this context of Philippians chapter 2. What does he just ask these people to do? To consider the needs of others. Who is Jesus Christ? He was the God of the universe, the creator of all things. When he entered the world, everyone should have fallen prostrate on the ground. They didn't. He didn't demand that they do so. As a matter of fact, he took upon himself the form of a servant. He didn't make demands. He could have exploited his position, his stature, but he didn't. As a matter of fact, he emptied himself. And he took upon himself the form of a servant. And as a man, he humbled himself even to the point of death. Now this is spoken in the context of verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So again, be responsible. But then ask yourself the question, am I a servant to others? Do I consider their needs? Jesus considered your need to the point where He was willing to have the Romans hang Him on a cross. But that was your need, wasn't it? You needed a Savior. You needed one who could, in your place, take the punishment of God. Now, as you look amongst yourself here, there are people who have a need. Now, we don't wear it on our lapel. I have a need, you know. We don't, we don't walk around like that. But there isn't a person here who doesn't have a need. Do you look to fulfill those needs? 
Do you look to how you are serving others? That's the point of the illustration of verses 5 through 11. And notice that when Jesus did empty himself and take upon himself the form of a servant, and he died on the cross, notice what happened to him. He was highly exalted. Now, I'm not saying we should do what we should do so that we can be highly exalted, but the point is, God the Father notices those who will humble themselves and serve others. So a worthy manner needs others. A worthy manner serves others. And lastly, a worthy manner never stops. And my time is up, but let me just mention, as the context flows through here, You'll notice verse 12 starts with, therefore, kind of starting to wrap up an idea here, put a bow around it. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying... Now go out and earn your salvation. He's saying go out and flesh out your redemption. This new life you have in Christ, this new mind that you have by adopting biblical truth, this sense of community that you can have in Christ, this sense of communion, this sense of the work of the Spirit, the injunctions of Scripture, Let's now take those and continue to work them out with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act of His good purpose. I could spend weeks on this text. It's so rich. I urge you to consider it yourselves. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks. You're patient. You urge us in our redemption to recognize we have become part of the family of God. And as such, we now ought to live as little children who love God. And so as little children who love God, it is incumbent upon us to live in light of others. We need others. We should serve others. And we should never stop until you call us home. Grant us the courage to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.